Welcome to On the Ballot with Ballotpedia, where we take a closer look at the week's top political stories. Ballotpedia connects people to politics by providing neutral, nonpartisan, and reliable information on our government, how it works, and where it's headed. We're here to give you the facts so you can form your own opinion. I'm Victoria Rose, and thanks for being with us. Today, we'll be taking a look at trifecta vulnerability across the country and breaking down noteworthy abortion-related ballot measures. Welcome to On the Ballot. A state government trifecta is a term we use here at Ballotpedia to describe single-party government, which means that one political party holds the governorship and majorities in both chambers of the state legislature. Overall, the U.S. has 37 trifectas, 23 held by Republicans and 14 held by Democrats. According to Ballotpedia's annual trifecta vulnerability ratings, 13 state government trifectas could be in hot water when the 2022 elections roll around in November. Here to break it down is none other than staff writer Doug Kreneisel. Hi, Doug. Thanks for having me, Victoria. Since you've become somewhat of a recurring character on the show, I thought we could take a moment to have you describe what you do here at Ballotpedia. Yeah, I like the idea of being a recurring character. Uh, here at Ballotpedia, I uh, cover a number of elections that you'll see uh, up on our website. Also conduct a number of analyses, like the ones we're about to talk about today and that we've talked about in previous episodes and ideally future episodes to come. Um, so yeah, digging into the numbers, digging into the data and presenting it in a way that kind of helps paint a clearer picture about what's going on uh, with politics today. Great. That's probably why we keep having you back. But now back to the subject matter at hand, we're going to start with what makes a trifecta vulnerable and how do we decide if a trifecta is vulnerable or not? It's a really good question. So Ballotpedia calculates the chances of trifectas breaking and forming by evaluating each piece of the trifecta individually. So those pieces are the governorship, control of the state Senate, and control of the state house. We base those evaluations of gubernatorial races on race ratings from outlets you might have heard about, like the Cook Political Report, Sabato's Crystal Ball, and Inside Elections. For state legislative chambers, we use a little bit of a different metric. So we look at the absolute number of seats up for election, and then the proportion of seats that would need to flip for the partisan control of that chamber to change, evaluating both chambers in the state's legislature individually. We then assign a numerical value to each one of those evaluations and then add them all together. The larger the value, the more vulnerable a trifecta becomes because that indicates that there are more opportunities for some change to take place. That's really interesting. What's typically at stake when a government loses or gains trifecta status? Changes in the state government's policy priorities often follow trifecta changes uh, because trifecta control affords one political party the opportunity to advance its agenda without having to you know, kind of negotiate or compromise with the other. Gaining or breaking trifectas, or in some cases, maintaining a divided government, therefore often becomes a major priority for parties heading into each election cycle. Yeah, that makes sense. Controlling all three major branches of government gives the party in power the least amount of friction in order to get its agenda done. So have you seen many changes to trifecta status in recent years? Yeah, the most recent one came in 2021. So Republicans in Virginia broke what had been a Democratic trifecta by winning the governorship and control of the House of Delegates. The state Senate was not up for election in 2021, as currently held by Democrats, but will be up for election in 2023. In 2020, uh, Republicans gained two trifectas in Montana and New Hampshire, both of which had been divided governments at the time of the election. 
But overall, between 2010 and 2021, we've seen 73 state government trifectas either broken or gained. And just out of curiosity, what trifectas have been in place the longest? The nine longest running trifectas are all Republican, with the oldest being Utah's trifecta. Uh, That's been around for 37 years since 1985. Idaho and both North and South Dakota have had Republican trifecta since 1995. The oldest Democratic trifecta is in President Biden's home state of Delaware, which has had a Democratic trifecta since 2009. California, Connecticut, and Hawaii have all had Democratic trifectas since 2011. And are there any trifectas that we're considering to be more vulnerable than others this year? Yeah, so the most vulnerable trifectas, the ones that kind of got that highest score or the highest numerical value when we were doing our evaluations, uh, for Democrats, that was in Delaware. Uh, you know, it's not having gubernatorial elections this year. And as we just talked about, it's a pretty uh, Democratic-leaning state or has been for since 2009 or so. But Democrats have a four-seat majority in the state Senate. So the opportunity of a pickup there for Republicans uh, is relatively high. Then Arizona is the only highly vulnerable Republican trifecta this year. And it's pretty vulnerable on all fronts. The governor's race is rated as a toss-up. Doug Ducey is not able to run for re-election because of term limits. And then Republicans have a one-seat majority in both the state House and the state Senate. And that's the narrowest governing majority in any state legislature in the country. Yeah, I was just back in Arizona, actually, and there were political ads everywhere. It definitely felt like a toss-up. How about states where the trifecta status could be in jeopardy, but aren't necessarily going to be races we're holding out our breath for? So these are the moderately vulnerable trifectas. Um, For Democrats, their moderately vulnerable trifectas are in Colorado, Maine, and Nevada. And then for Republicans, we found them in Georgia, New Hampshire, and Texas. And with New Hampshire, you know, like we said, 2020, it became a Republican trifecta. It's a pretty volatile state. Its legislature alone changed party hands something like five times over the past decade. So trifecta status there is pretty fluid. And are there any long shots out there? Yeah, the Republican trifectas in Florida and Iowa are rated as somewhat vulnerable. And then the Democratic trifectas in Illinois, Oregon, and Washington are also considered somewhat vulnerable by our analysis. Now tell us about the states with divided governments. Prepping for our conversation, I saw that there were 13 states with divided governments. I'd imagine that establishing trifecta status in these states is a top priority for the Democratic and Republican parties. Is that correct? Definitely. I mean, with uh, Montana, New Hampshire in 2020, obviously you saw it playing a big role for Republicans trying to gain Republican trifectas in those states. Um, Each party has a chance to establish trifectas this uh, election cycle. The possible Democratic trifecta pickups are in Maryland, Massachusetts, Minnesota, and North Carolina. In Maryland and Massachusetts, Democrats control the state legislature in both of those states, both chambers, but Republicans control the governorship. And neither of the incumbent Republican governors in those two states are seeking re-election this year. Uh, Minnesota has a Democratic governor who's up for re-election. And then they are actually one of two states in the country that has a divided legislature where one party controls one chamber, one party controls the other. And then in North Carolina, they've got a Democratic governor currently, uh, and then Republicans control the legislature. For Republicans, the top pickup chances are in Alaska and Kansas. Now, Alaska is the other one of those two states where there's split control in the legislature. You got a Republican control of the Senate, but 
a really unique, you know, our bipartisan, multipartisan coalition in the House where Republicans have a numerical majority in that chamber, but there's a different governing majority. And so uh, that is something that we always look at every election cycle to see sort of how the chips fall and then how people kind of organize themselves afterwards. And then in Kansas, Republicans control the legislature, uh, but Democrats control the governorship and that governorship is up for election this year. That's all really interesting. Are there any states where we might have a free-for-all on our hands where either party has a shot to establish a trifecta? Typically, we'll see this in battleground states. And this year, those are Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, where both parties have the opportunity to establish a state government trifecta. Uh, A lot of those come down to the gubernatorial contests. Democrats currently hold that office in all three states, while Republicans control both chambers of the legislature. The gubernatorial races in Michigan and Pennsylvania are currently lean or tilt Democratic. That's how they're rated, while the race in Wisconsin is rated as a toss-up. But these ratings might change as the candidate fields become a little bit more settled. So Republicans in Michigan just picked their candidate for governor on August 2nd, and then Republicans in Wisconsin will select their nominee on August 9th. And in both of those instances, whoever is picked or will be picked is going to face an incumbent Democratic governor in those two states. Got it. Well, thank you for coming on again, Doug. With this context, it'll be interesting to see what states gain or lose trifecta status this fall. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Hey, listeners, this is Jeff Paule, Ballopedia's editor-in-chief. Here at Ballopedia, our mission is to ensure that every citizen has access to information to make informed decisions about their vote in every election. If this is a dream you share, well, you're in luck. Ballopedia is hiring and looking to add to our team of fast learners and creative problem solvers who are eager to work hard to make the world a better place. To learn more about our current openings, you can find them at ballopedia.org jobs or via the link in our show notes. Thanks, and hope to see you here at Ballopedia. Our next topic concerns abortion. I just wanted to remind our listeners that Ballotpedia is committed to neutrality and does not endorse any position on any issue. This discussion will center around abortion on the ballot and other historical trends we're tracking. This year, there will be at least five ballot measures addressing abortion, the most on record for a single year. Measures have been certified for the ballot in California, Kansas, Kentucky, Montana, and Vermont. The U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade in June, ruling, quote, the Constitution does not confer a right to abortion. Roe and Casey are overruled, and the authority to regulate abortion is returned to the people and their elected representatives, end quote. As a result, ballot measures have become a tool to shape abortion policy. Here to bring us up to speed is Ballot Measures Managing Editor, Ryan Byrne. Hey, Victoria. Glad to be here. Good to have you back on the show, Ryan. On August 2nd, Kansans decided on an amendment to the Kansas Constitution to state that nothing in the state constitution creates a right to abortion or requires government funding of abortions. Kansas is the first state to vote on abortion rights since the U.S. Supreme Court passed down their verdict on Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization. So there were definitely a lot of eyes on this ballot measure. What was the result, Ryan? Kansans rejected the constitutional amendment, with 100% of precincts reporting the vote was 59% no to 41% yes. As you mentioned, the measure would have amended the Kansas Constitution, and the amendment was a response to the Kansas Supreme Court ruling in 2019, when the court held that the Kansas Bill of Rights afforded a right to abortion. The amendment was designed to overturn that ruling, which was the point of contention between supporters and opponents. Supporters viewed that as giving the power to regulate abortion at various stages of pregnancy to legislators. 
Opponents viewed that as an attack on women's state constitutional rights. How did turnout in Kansas compare to previous primary election dates? Based on unofficial results, it looks like more than 908,000 people voted on the constitutional amendment, compared to 727,000 in the gubernatorial primaries and 718,000 in the U.S. Senate primaries. Turnout on the amendment exceeded overall turnout at the 2018 and 2020 state primaries. Raw turnout was up for both Democrats and Republicans, but the amendment could have had a particular effect on Democratic voter turnout relative to total turnout for the gubernatorial and U.S. Senate elections. For example, of those who voted in the gubernatorial primaries, 38% voted in the Democratic primary compared to 33% in 2018 and 20% in 2014. It'll be interesting to see if the issue continues to affect voter turnout into the fall. And speaking of November, voters in California and Vermont will be the first to decide ballot measures to establish state constitutional rights to abortion. What's on the ballot in these states? In California, voters will decide Proposition 1, which will provide that the state cannot deny or interfere with an individual's decisions to have an abortion or to choose or refuse contraceptives. In Vermont, voters will decide Proposal 5, which would amend the Vermont Constitution to provide that individuals have a state constitutional right to personal reproductive autonomy. Both of these measures were proposed in relation to an eventual ruling from the U.S. Supreme Court. In Vermont, the amendment was actually proposed a couple years ago uh, after Justice Anthony Kennedy retired. In California, the governor and legislative leaders called for an amendment after the Dobbs draft opinion leaked. In Kentucky, one of the states I actually cover, They will decide on an amendment in November to its state constitution to state that nothing in it can be interpreted to establish a state constitutional right to abortion, which is similar to that Kansas amendment we were just speaking of. Where else have we seen similar amendments? Since 2014, voters in four states, Alabama, Louisiana, Tennessee, and West Virginia, have approved such amendments. The last state to actually reject one was Florida in 2012. Massachusetts was the first state to vote on this type of amendment where it was defeated in 1986. These types of amendments are designed to address previous and future state court rulings on abortion that have prevented or could prevent legislatures from passing certain abortion laws. In Montana this fall, they're taking a slightly different approach with LR-131, which we've titled the Medical Care Requirements for Born Alive Infants Measure. What would this measure do? Right. The measure states that infants born alive at any stage of development are legal persons, and it requires medical care to be provided to infants born alive after an attempted abortion, an induced labor, a cesarean section, or another method. Uh, And it will establish a $50,000 fine or 20 years in prison as the maximum penalty for violating the law. At the federal level, there's a similar law that Congress passed in 2002. There's still over three months until the November election. Are there any chances that we might see additional ballot measures added before then? We could. Right now we're at five, and we could see as many as seven. Campaigns for two citizen-initiated measures are active in Colorado and Michigan. An initiative was also proposed in Arizona, but not enough signatures were collected to make the ballot by the July 7 deadline. And what are the backgrounds behind these citizen-initiated measures? In Michigan, as well as the one that didn't make the ballot in Arizona, The initiative would provide state constitutional rights to abortion, as well as other decisions about matters relating to pregnancy. The sponsors of the Michigan petition submitted more than 750,000 signatures. Those signatures are currently being verified by the state. The campaign needs about 425,000 to be valid to qualify for the ballot in November. In Colorado, the campaign Colorado Life Initiative is collecting signatures 
for a ballot measure to prohibit abortion in the state. Signatures in Colorado are due on August 8th. We have a lengthy history of abortion-related ballot measures on our website, but let's put these ballot measures in, in context for our listeners. There are five measures this year. That's the most since when? That's actually the most since 1986, which featured four abortion-related ballot measures. And when did we start to see abortion-related ballot measures? We started to see abortion as a topic featured on ballots a few years before Roe v. Wade. Unlike the trend we saw after Roe, these pre-Roe measures focused on legalizing abortion in their respective states. The first abortion-related measure to appear on a ballot was Washington Referendum 20 in 1970. Referendum 20, which voters approved, legalized abortion in the state of Washington, which was three years before Roe. Measures to legalize abortion were also proposed in Michigan and North Dakota a few years later in 1972, but both of those were defeated. So after the U.S. Supreme Court decided Roe v. Wade in 1973, there were no abortion-related ballot measures for a couple years until 1978. Overall, there's been 48 abortion-related ballot measures since 1970. Well, thank you, Ryan, for coming on to discuss this and providing that historical context. I'll let you go recover from election night now. Great. Thanks for having me, Victoria. Hey there, listeners. It's time for Footnote Facts. Unlike Tom Cruise's character on A Few Good Men, you can handle the truth. As always, I'm here to hit you up with some trivia so that you can dunk that trivia on other people. Today's topic is local government. And of course, today's trivia question for you listeners, which is... How many states do not have a city in the top 100 largest cities by population? And I'll have the answer for you later in the show. So local governments, unfortunately, rarely get any spotlight, but they are the most vital to our day to day lives. And there are a lot of these entities coming in all sorts of shapes, sizes and functions. How many are we talking about, Paul? Well, the census of governments, which is done every five years, Back in 2017 is our best look at the current numbers, and we're talking about over 90,000 total local governments. And we can break it down into special purpose and general purpose governments. Special purpose just means it has a specific function, such as overseeing utilities, hospitals, or libraries. There's over 51,000 of these kinds of governments, and you can find as few as 21 in Hawaii to almost 7,000 in Illinois. Again, though, that's the 2017 data, so there may be more than that now. Tons of these kinds of governments are special districts, of which there are close to 39,000. So more than three quarters of special purpose governments are special districts. It's a little confusing between those two terms, but that's how the census of governments denotes it. Special purpose governments also include varying types of school districts. School districts can be based on age and grade levels, or they can include multiple counties or the unification of multiple districts, for example. You also sometimes see independent school districts, or ISDs for short, especially in Texas. And while ISDs vary in definition depending on the state, it typically refers to a school district that operates separately from local and state governments. Independent or not, there are nearly a whopping 14,000 public school districts in the U.S. teaching the youngins. But general purpose governments, on the other hand, have a wider scope of responsibilities. There's over 38,000 of those, the most well-known types being county and municipal governments. So you have over 3,100 counties, though Louisiana calls their equivalent subdivisions parishes, and Alaska has boroughs. Alaska also has census areas that are part of what is called the unorganized borough, though it is not actually a borough itself. And then there are over 40 independent cities, mostly in Virginia, which are more like counties themselves instead of being part of actual counties. 
Now, there is a caveat that comes with these counties and governments, however, and relatedly municipalities. But you'll have to wait to hear what that is until later in the show. Ooh, suspense. That's the general overview of local governments. Later in the show, we're going to get more into the weeds of these counties and municipalities. But for now, it's back to Victoria with our newsletter spotlight. If you've enjoyed our discussion on ballot measures, be sure to sign up for the state ballot measure monthly newsletter. It tracks the number of measures appearing on the ballot and topics and trends we're watching. Here are a few highlights from the July edition. 116 statewide ballot measures have been certified in 35 states. In California, the legislature referred one amendment to the ballot. Three more initiatives qualified and one initiative was withdrawn during June, bringing the total for this year's general election to seven propositions, the fewest since 2009. And in Alaska, one indirect initiative, the State Recognition of American Indian Tribes Initiative, was certified to the legislature. Legislatures passed the initiative, which now requires the governor's signature to become law. If the governor does not sign the bill, the initiative will appear on the ballot. To read more about ballot measures, go to Ballotpedia.org and find the email updates tab or use the link in our show notes to sign up for the State Ballot Measures monthly newsletter or to check out our other newsletters. Polypolitics is back with more footnote facts about the oft-overlooked local governments in the U.S. Now, I mentioned earlier in the show that counties and municipalities have a caveat when it comes to governance, and that is that not all of them have their own governments. The vast majority of counties do, but there are some exceptions. Some, but not all of the counties in Massachusetts have their own governments. Connecticut hasn't had any county governments since legislation passed in 1959 and 1961. And Rhode Island doesn't have any either, though there are 39 municipalities that each have their own governments there. Now, for those counties that do have their own government, one of the major aspects of their governance is whether or not they are chartered. A charter is basically a local constitution, and it gives local governments a greater measure of home rule, such as enacting certain laws specific to that locality or structuring its government in certain ways. Now, local governments that don't have their own charter are under what is known as general law, meaning they are subject to state constitutional provisions and state statutes that lay out those fundamental governance doctrines for them. But as with many things in politics, how charters work differs between states. 17 states do not allow county charters at all, but most of the 33 states that do allow them allow them for all their counties. And a few of those 33 states include Hawaii, Kansas, Maryland, and South Dakota. If there are restrictions on county charters, it's based on county populations, where only counties with a minimum number of residents can enact charters. For example, Missouri only allows charters for counties with a population of 85,000 or more people. And a lot of municipal areas in the U.S. do not have their own government either. You see city, town, and village governments arise through municipal incorporation, but not every one of these is going to have their own charter either. And similar to counties, states may have some restrictions on when municipal charters can be enacted. Five states do not allow for municipal charters at all, but many of the other 45 states allow charters for all municipalities, such as Iowa, Louisiana, and Michigan. If there are restrictions, they are almost always based on population, such as Delaware, Nebraska, and New Mexico. States with more than 500 charter cities include Kansas, North Carolina, and Georgia. Now, there's so much more to talk about when it comes to local government, but sadly, we do not have the time for it in this episode. But we do have time to answer that trivia question I posed to you earlier in the show. Again, that question is, how many states do not 
have a city in the top 100 largest cities by population? And if your answer was 17, then congratulations. You won. You did the thing. And I would give you some points, but really the satisfaction of knowing the answer should be enough, right? (sighs) Fine. I'll give you 30 points. Go down to your favorite local restaurant. Tell them you got Ballotpedia's podcast trivia question correct, and I'm sure they will give you free food. Maybe. Anyway, enough yammering from me. Now to Victoria to close this episode out. That's all for this week's episode of On the Ballot. Thanks again to Doug, Ryan, and Paul for coming on the show. Make sure you don't miss an episode by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll be back next week to discuss August 9th primary election results, as well as how incumbents are faring this election season. If you have any questions, comments, or just some love for BP, feel free to send it to us at ontheballot at ballotpedia.org or on Twitter at Ballotpedia. I'm Victoria Rose, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.